every part of the pig, every single part of the pig is, you know, something that can be used. And I think that that is, you know, one of the things that makes it so special to me is that it is something that you can, you know, it's, it's an amazing beast, an amazing beast. And the gelatin, you know, the way it makes things set, it's a, it's a, it's a thing of wonder. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. When dining, it is the conviviality between people that makes an occasion so special. The food, the wine and the service all play a role in completing the full circle on a spectacular experience and allow people to make a genuine connection while breaking bread. Early on in her career, Annie Smithers realised the value of connections and set about creating a small, specialised restaurant in the countryside where she could connect with local farmers, with the land, and over long lunches with her guests too. Annie Smithers, one of the most interesting things you've said to me recently was that you've boned out a whole pig like a chicken until you'd learnt a better way to do it. And it's fascinated me ever since I found that out. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> well, yes. But I sort of, I'm a bit nervous because my contemporaries might think that I'm a, you know, I'm a bit of a nong. <laughs> but um, it was, it was a number of years ago and through, through, sort of a, a set of circumstances that sort of revolved, actually revolved around Facebook of all things. A friend of mine in San Francisco sent me a message and said, this really cool American woman that has spent the last 25 years in France is coming to Australia with her pig farmer and his wife and do you want to hold a charcuterie class? And it was sort of like they were coming in two weeks and it was sort of, oh, yeah, okay, no worries. Yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> so so I met this amazing, you know, I, I spoke, I was introduced via Facebook to this amazing woman called Kate Hill who is an American who has lived in France for 30-something years. And she was indeed coming to Australia to visit the Chapelards, who is her pig farmer and charcuterie. Um, their son, who had uh, been living in Sydney. And I think, you know, basically she wanted to raise some airfares by doing some masterclasses. And within that two weeks, we managed to, you know, fill the spots for the class for the day and fill the spots for the dinner. But the only real problem that I had was sourcing an appropriate pig because I just needed, she just said, get a whole pig, like, just get a whole pig. I said, okay. <laughs> so I sort of rang around my um, my pig farming mates and Marnie, she said, yes, she had a pig that she could have slaughtered for me and it would be because it needed to be a manageable size because it was really just being done on a restaurant table to people in chairs in front of us and it's not, you know, has a yeah, there was nothing proper about it. But but in a sense, there was something incredibly proper about it to me. Um, so she actually she actually had two pigs slaughtered. So 
we did the class with one of the pigs and they were about 70, 75 kilos each. And I was, I was very busy being the hostess with the mostess, you know, looking after the, the, you know, the people had come to the class and being in the kitchen on the back end. And Kate, who is incredibly knowledgeable and theatrical, told the story and waved her arms around and Dominic cut up the pig in the way that the French will break down a pig, which is slightly different to the Australian way. And then in the afternoon, he and his wife and Kate all sort of tag team to turn this beast into some really, really um, very French charcuterie, not always the stuff that you understand as Australians to be. But I was coming and going and coming and going and I didn't really pay attention to the whole process and I'd bought the two pigs just in case there wasn't enough for, you know, in case it was the wrong size or it wasn't what they wanted or so the next day I had pig number two just lying in the cool room looking at me and I thought, oh, God, I've got... And I was a bit tired after this big event that we'd had and I just thought, oh, God, I, I can remember him saying what to do next but I can't really quite get it. I can't. And I just manoeuvred this pig onto my kitchen bench and I have quite a small kitchen at Defumier so it sort of took up the whole central bench. It was about... I don't know, it was meter, 1.8 metres long. And I did. I just rolled it onto its back and I slid it down the middle and I boned it like a chicken because it was the best I could do because I was really tired and I hadn't paid attention. And I've actually, look, I, I it must have been indicative of the fact that I was a bit weary because I've broken up. Lamb is something that I break up on a regular basis. I, I've got my little hacksaw and my little cleaver and I break I break the lambs down without even thinking. But there was something about this pig. So I just ended up with a boned, just a whole boned pig. <laughs> and then I separated it into its muscles. So it was very, it was very back to front and it was very, um, it was very physical. <laughs> It was a very physical thing to do to wrestle. Uh, it was like sort of, I suppose it would be like sort of, I think I might have been a little bit heavier than that when I did it, but it was sort of like my size. It was just, it was, it was, it was odd. It was, it was one of my more special moments. Well, butchery is how you got into chefing. Can you, can you tell us about your fascination with that early in your um, chefing career? Um, I... I grew up in an outer suburb of Melbourne and it was a it was it, in fact it was designed by a a junior of Mr Burley Griffin so it is a suburb outer suburb of Melbourne that has circular a circular narrative like Canberra and part of this yeah it was a it was a small outer suburban suburb that had a strip shopping mall or strip shopping strip and it was a butcher and a supermarket and a greengrocer and a fish and chip shop and a milk bar and a petrol station and the you know in the 70s and 80s that that sort of shopping was integral to a small community and i used to love going into the butcher shop and the smell of it, the wood shavings on the floor, the big, the, the beautiful butcher's blocks that are worn down and 
I don't know, there's something about them grabbing the meat out of the trays and wrapping it up and having a chat and the 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 vibe of the butchers. They're sort of such friendly people. And when I when I was a kid, I used to pretend I used to play, you know, pretend games instead of, you know, I don't know, playing with Barbies. I played with cutting out the cat meat like the butcher. And I used to love I used to love the sound of the steel and I used to love the sound of the blade going through meat. So, yeah, it was, it was, um, I never considered being a butcher um, in terms of a, a life choice because I think in 1983 when I finished school, if I said, oh, look, I want to be a, a lady butcher, I'm not sure what the opportunities would have been, but you know, I became a cook instead. You did become a cook. And what sort of um, people influenced you along the way? And what were the key sort of integral moments as a chef that sort of helped define who you are? Oh, it's been, I mean, it's been a very long process to get where I am now. And the... I mean, the earliest, the earliest influences on me were... They, they were women. Um, my mother was a very good cook, and she she was a dinner party cook. She they held a, a fabulous dinner party in the seventies. Um, she went to a lot of cooking classes with Beverly Sutherland Smith, sort of the doyen of the you know Melbourne cooking class scene. She wrote for the Age and things. But I think early Mum had a fantastic cookbook collection, and there was something about mastering the art of cookery that I really gravitated to, and LaRousse. And I think it was sort of the size, you know, they, they looked like sort of tomes of wisdom. And I started cooking, you know, as a child I cooked things that my mother didn't cook, which was a lot of baking and yeast work and things that she, you know, she did more sort of, you know, the, I suppose the forerunner of restaurant food, that sort of fancy dinner party type food. I mean, mum, mum wouldn't think twice about boning a quail for Christmas Day or 15 quail. But, um, you know, so, so there was certainly that, that sort of background of some, you know, classic, classic cookbooks and classic women in the industry that I had no idea of their importance at that stage. And then after, you know, finishing school and f- finding an apprenticeship, which wasn't overly easy, um, I ended up in a funny little res- little seafood restaurant run by Austrians for six months, and I wasn't I wasn't terribly happy there. It was it was that classic story of the apprentice. You know, I used to clean out the grease trap and vacuum the restaurant and mow the front lawn, and you know, I did <laughs> I did lots of cooking. Um, and I wasn't terribly happy and my dad suggested that I, he said, and and again, it's this naivety that you look back on and think, oh, my God, how could I have been so stupid? Um, and dad had read in the Epicure that, you know, Stephanie's had reopened from there, two weeks closed or something. He said, why don't you ring them up and ask them for a job? I said, oh, okay, okay, I will. So I rang. And then the first day back and, oh, anyway, I had an interview and I had a trial and I spent the next three and a half years with Mrs Alexander and, yeah, 
And that's that's eighty eighty four to eighty seven. And if you think about that that part in Australian, you know, restaurant and gastronomy history, it's an incredibly it it laid such incredible foundations for everything that's come to pass since. And again, there was a very strong. Um, yeah, there was obviously Stephanie and, you know, Gay Bilson was doing extraordinary things at Barrow Waters in Sydney. Um, they both, you know, Neil had come out of the Stephanie's kitchen, Yanni had come out of the Stephanie's kitchen and then there was this sort of burgeoning movement happening in Adelaide um, with Philip and, and Christine and things all, you know, with the, you know, a couple of cracking symposiums over there. And it was the dawn of what I think is, you know, what we see today in this extraordinary restaurant world that has and culture that we have made ours and made Australian. And it was in those years that so much groundwork was laid. And for me, as a young female apprentice, to have such strong female role models was... It, it wasn't even questioned. They were just there, you know, Gay, Stephanie, Mietta, you know, on and on the list goes. So I think that that's where the the very, you know, the very essence of who I became stemmed from that very beginning point. And that was an era, so who I've become now is very linked to the fact that in 1984, there was no salmon industry in Australia. In 1984, there was um, there was a little man, a, a Frenchman down at Mornington who had a company called Le Herbier, and he used to grow special lettuces and herbs. Now, those special lettuces and herbs you now see in every Coles and Woolies in a bag that have been, have been tortured into something that they you know, they've become a staple. But you could own, you could only buy a loaf of ciabatta in Ligon Street. Yeah, so so to be exposed to all of those ingredients, the raw ingredients, you know, the you know, I you know, had a job at one stage where I I had to slice smoked salmon that had been air freighted from Scotland. I you know, we had veal from Western Australia. We had cheese from Western Australia. And even though I'd been brought up in a nice sort of cushy middle-class world where my parents did take me to some very nice restaurants, this was this was just a sense of wonder. And on top of the, the produce that was coming in and being supported um, was the thick, yeah, another thing that I completely fell in love with, which was the study of technique and how how things come together in a kitchen and what skills and what techniques you need. Can we have a look at those? I mean, how would you describe your food and what sort of techniques are sort of really key to your cookery? Um, I I feel that the 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 path that I've trod has led me, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, to a point where I represent an Australian version of French peasant cooking. 
And there's quite a there's a bit to unwrap in that, in the sense that I didn't I didn't travel until I was quite old, so I haven't I haven't spent a lot of time overseas. Um, and but I am incredibly attracted to the concept of the French farmer, French cook, where on a regional peasant level. So where where peasantry may be a, you know, it may be insulting to some people. To the French, that that concept of being self sufficient and small and managing to live and work seasonally is incredibly precious. And that has that that's really grown in me over the years. And that is that is what has come to define what my food is all about because I would say it's just lunch and it is just lunch. But in saying that it's just lunch, lunch is actually an incredibly important meal in some, you know, in some parts of the world. It's not, it, it's, it's food to be, it's the middle of the day, it's where you get your greater sense of sustenance and if you are out for lunch, it is an occasion and it is to be enjoyed. But for me, food needs to be the the backdrop to that social interaction. So the most important thing is that those people have a good time. So whether it's two of you at a table or four of you at a table or eight of you at a table, is it's the conviviality between the people that makes the occasion. The food and the wine are important, but you need you you can't you can't and in a sense the food the wine and the service is important if you're out because you you can't really have a really great time if you're eating shit food and you certainly you can actually get away with eating you know ordinary food if you have great service I believe that service service can often trump food. Um, and wine is, you know, wine is itself, you know, wine, you know, good wine, bad wine, you know, there's great cheap wine, there's awful expensive wine, you know, just good wine, whatever it is. So for me, my food now revolves around the fact that I grow a lot of it and it needs to speak for itself and it needs, you know, I, I, I think of it as being not really not really tortured or you know not not fussed with too much because it is very fresh and it is you know just just picked and it has that it has that vibrancy that a lot of bought products don't have but then i think about um what goes on behind the scenes and what the i have you know i i'm incredibly proud of the fact that i've got a very broad skill base and sometimes i think i'm you know jack of all trades and master of none but there was something in those beginning years particularly at stephanie's where i i learned you know fantastic pastry skills um laminating you know viennoiserie skills um but also how to make beautiful stocks of how to you know i've learned how to butcher stuff i've learned you know i i, I have a I have a vast, you know, collection of things to to draw on, and that can be it can be confusing at times because you think, oh, I'd really just like to have a bakery and sell croissants and make quiches, but 
no, I've got a restaurant, so I'll I'll stay with the restaurant. But but it is that thing of sort of you know being having those basic skills of being able to bake, being able to butcher, being able to you know make great stocks, being able to bone things. You know, I don't have knife skills like a lot of the the younger kids who have you know, extraordinary knife skills. I don't have knife skills like that, but I have knife skills that are that can see me across a, a very broad section of the kitchen, which sometimes they can't do. So it is um, it's it's that combination of all of those all of that and I the the Frenchness of it is that technique and the rules the rule book that you adhere to in a way. And there's just something it's just it's just magical. The whole thing is just magical for me. I just sometimes just step back in wonder at sort of the way that food works and just think, I can't I can't believe you. It's getting on, you know, like you know, 30, 30, I don't know, 36, 37 years. It's getting it's nearly 40. But every every day something will make me smile and I'll just say, Isn't it isn't it isn't it beautiful? You know, if I roll the bread this a different way, this is this is the result I get. So it's just that sense of wonder that I think maybe that's what defines my food, that childish sort of wonder of, oh, look at that. It looks like a ball one. Well, you shared the, that sort of love that you have for that ideal of the f- French farmer and the French chef and, you know, you have your restaurant but you also uh, have a farm, you know, and you have a real connection with local produce and, and grow your own and you even um, sort of look after animals as well. What's it like trying to manage the farm and the restaurant as one sort of a lifestyle? It's I, I moved to the bigger property about three and a half years ago. So before that, I was growing vegetables on an acre of land, and that that period was across two different restaurants in different styles, sort of a bigger restaurant and a smaller restaurant, and the ideal of sustainability and self-sufficiency is incredibly important to me and it gets it's more important every day it's a it's a thing that grows grows with me and on me but one of the decisions when I first opened a Femier we opened breakfast lunch and dinner and that was that was uh the re- you know I needed to I needed to make some money and over the years, it's been whittled down to four lunches a week, and that's been a that's been a commitment for me to be able to say no because there is demand for us to open more often. But I work on my own in the kitchen, and I had got to the point where I preferred not to work with too many people. Um, it just didn't. It didn't work too well for me. So I, I chug along on my own. And it's also very difficult when you are trying to relay instructions to people when you, know, you might think you're going to dig something out of the garden that morning but it's not ready or it died or it's, you know, it's not suitable. Or So it's very, it's very difficult for someone to keep up. So I just I'm, I made the call to just work on my own. And that meant that the restaurant had to be of a suitable size. And then when I turned 50, I decided that 
I really wasn't, um, it sort of coincided with being here and it, I realised that I didn't pull up from those 15, 18-hour days so well anymore and my quality of life was really slipping and there was a slight, um, you know, I was getting pretty cranky and I just thought I, I want to do this for a very long time. So I cut it back to lunches, which is much more, it's a much more sustainable existence because I, I work, you know, I'm on the ground at work for eight hours, five days a week. You know, it's like a normal person. <laughs> um, but um, it also allows me to employ people on that basis as well so that they don't, they don't have to, I'm not asking them to do things that I no longer want to do. But what it does allow me is to make the choice to then put on my second hat as Farmer Annie. And I certainly have, I've got two great guys that work with me in the garden. One of them is an ex, an ex-chef who just decided that kitchens kitchen kitchens weren't for him. So having his his knowledge of what what is expected in a kitchen um, is been really really helpful. And I think as the industry moves forward, there is more and more opportunity for people who love the hospitality industry but can't quite get there working in a restaurant doesn't really suit them. There's so many opportunities now to get out and grow things or breed things or brew things or whatever so that they can stay on the outer reaches of it and be involved but not be tortured by it. So so we have the gut we have James and Kieran here and um they do they do five days between them. And I do a lot of it. So in winter's sort of like the reprieve because there's not a lot of daylight. And but in summer I might spend an hour in the garden before I go to work and then two or three hours in the garden when I come home. And that might be crawling along, listening to a podcast, weeding or but it's it's incredibly beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful connection to have um, with the food that you're cooking. And then on the other side of that is we invest our time in keeping animals for the fibre industry and, you know, keeping a couple of rare breeds that, um, you know, we breed, you know, are part of breeding up so that because the fibre industry is has been, you know, crucified in the same way that the food growing industry has and sort of, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the rare breed stuff and the you know the the heirloom type the heirloom vegetables of the fiber fiber world are in you know decline in the same way. So we just do our little bit there and we keep some geese and we keep we've got a couple of cows that we're 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 not keeping for uh, not keeping for meat. We're keeping them to breed them out for other people like us with small acreage that don't want to kill their pets and. Um, yeah, you know, so so we've got our fibre creatures and our egg laying creatures, and generally it's a it's a pretty lovely life. Now you've also kept pigs, haven't you? What what sort of um, <laughs> I was about to say what sort of people are they? What <laughs> what, are, what are they like to uh, look after? Uh, when I was in Malmesbury, which is my where I had my little acre of garden, um, the guys down the road bred some Wessex saddlebacks. 
and I decided that I would I would like a couple of Wessex saddlebacks. So so I had Dottie and Dora, and Dottie and Dora were amazing, amazing creatures. They are incredibly intelligent. They are everything that everybody tells you about pigs. If you are if you have a little a wheelbarrow with some tools or yeah, garden tools or maintenance tools in it, they will take all of them out and inspect them and play with them and toss them around. They play chasey, they they're just they're rambunctious, they're naughty. But they really are the most extraordinary complete package for the small smallholder farmer. So you can take a pig and you've got your two little pigs and they will turn your earth over for you which means that they can do all the backbreaking work of, you know, tilling field, you know, tilling a paddock and, you know, you just let them go in there and they fertilise as they go. Um, and then when they get too big, off you go. You put them away and then not only can you eat them as fresh meat, but their ratio of meat to fat is so perfect that they are the ultimate preservation beast. So for me, that relationship between the pig and the small-scale farmer, it, it was extraordinary to see how they developed, what they could do for you, and then know the back end of what you could do with them um, and know that if I was a little French farmer on my acre or, in this case, 23 acres, and I kept a couple of pigs... I would get, you know, triple value out of those creatures. But it was also, it was very, um, Dottie and Dora didn't meet the best end. So we, it taught me a great deal about the pig industry. And I live in an area where there's a number of small scale, you know, fantastic pig farmers. But there's also some older older pig farmers around who have got out of it because their way of farming pigs doesn't suit the mass market. So if you if you keep pigs and you breed pigs, you need to, you know, I understood with the size of them and how they move around. And I, when they were little, I used to go and sit with them in their bed at night and I'd read them stories and they'd bite my toes. And it was really cute and Charlotte's websy. But you realise that these are big girls and, you know, that's why farmers would sit and make sure that when they did have their piglets they wouldn't roll on them. And then there's, then there's the fact that pigs are, like, um, pigs are like Labradors. They just hoover. They don't have an off switch. And one of my pigs, so Dottie... Um, Dottie, I brought home scraps from the restaurant. Dottie ate too much on a very hot day. They have very small pulmonary systems. She lay down in the sun and she'd eaten too much and she died because the pressure from her stomach put too much pressure on her on her lungs and she expired. And I came home in the middle, you know, at four o'clock to lock everybody up and I've got 60 kilos of dead pig in the in the yard. And it was sort of, it was wow, um, apart from the grief and the tears and the responsibility of this, 
it was it i had to, i had to, i also had to go back to work that night and cook pork i mean i had pork as one of the dishes on the menu and it was this shuddering experience of this is this is how fragile life and death is with these creatures so then again you understand why automatic feeding of pigs and only letting them have you know their ration is a sensible idea so it it gave me reinforcement to say okay i don't have time for animal husbandry on this level this is not my skill set do not do not do this again um but it gave me an inc- a greater level of respect for the farmers that i do you know, use they do it as a full-time job this is not a part-time job raising meat animals it made me realize that this this a the lives everything that comes across my kitchen bench in a meat or poultry or fish capacity is a life and it needs the most utmost respect because you cannot you cannot waste any part of what you have on your bench because that that creature has given its life for you and that that has become through experiences like like Dotty and Dora that's become very much you know, part of the narrative that sort of sings along in my head every day when I'm working. Tell me about some of the local pork producers that you do use. Well, we have the lovely Judy Crow, who I've been using for a very long time to buy pork from. Um, so Judy, Judy and Tim have Western Plains pork. And they breed bread free range pigs. Um, so they have a white cross pig that is, um, it's, it's not mass market, but it is recognizable as really good pork to most of my customers. Um, so I have used, I, I think that Judy and Tim have been great leaders in farming in this capacity. They're incredibly knowledgeable and they're incredibly um, up-to-date with technological farming. That means that their herd of pigs is kept in the utmost, the tip-top condition using satellite technology and all sorts of things that they've introduced onto their farm with virtual this and virtual that. And it's, to me, they're... They're real leaders in the field of embracing new technology to farm better um, and always at the forefront is the welfare of their animals. Uh, and then there's, then there's the breed, the, the rare breed um, cohort. Um, so Lauren from Mandara Berkshires just across the border, uh, McIver Farm in, you know, just I think they're northwest of us. Um, across there um, we recently Laura and I'm, I'm having a blank about her farm's name but look there's a there's a lady called Laura who has taken up delivering the Great Ocean Road ducks and she and her husband farm Durrock Cross Berkshire pigs so we've been I've just uh, I've just finished a couple of legs of ham from one of hers and I also got she killed a salami pig Wendy was her name 
and we got one of one of Wendy's shoulders, and one of Wendy's shoulders when it was boned out was about twenty eight kilos. So, wow, Wendy must have been big, I think. So, so there's 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 sort of these you know, and then there's the guys out at uh, Blampede who have the British white cattle and the pigs out there. So there's there's a lot of small scale pig farmers around. There's there's two things that you know. There's there's two things that I work on with the farmers is that so for someone like Judy is I will buy my, a lot of my pork from her. So if I am serving pork as a main course like a shoulder or, um, you know, a full loin or, um, you know, whatever, I'll probably get Judy's pork. But for all of my charcuterie work, I tend to use a lot more of the rare breed stuff because of the fat content on it. When I reached out to you to have a chat today, you sent me one of the most offensive photos I've ever seen, which was a pork dish. And <laughs> I was very upset because I was really hungry at the time. It would look extraordinary. Uh, what's, what's some of your favourite cuts and the, the best ways to cook them? Well, that very rude photo was it was, it was, a by, it was actually a byproduct. So... Well, because we're in COVID land, we do do a bit of extracurricular revenue raising. And one of the extracurricular revenue raising things that I had done was I had done some, I'd sold off some Christmas in July hampers. Never been very big on Christmas in July, but it seemed to cheer up a few few people this year. So, and one of the items in the hamper was a little, one and a half, two kilo ham from a place in Ballarat, which is sort of an hour from here. And Mick Nam runs Salt Kitchen Charcuterie. And he he has another link to me in the fact that he actually went and did a, a couple of weeks intensive course over in France with Kate Hill and uh, Dominic Chapelard to learn a lot of his charcuterie skills. And I asked Mick if he could make me 40 what he refers to as a teardrop ham, which is a boneless um, ham that's about one and a half, two kilos big. And he said yes, if he could get, so the pork came from limestone pork in Yay. So they're another rare breed, you know, beautiful producer. And he said, but what am I going to do with the 20 hocks, Annie? And I said, oh, I'll take the hocks. So he actually lightly brined the hocks for a couple of uh, for five days I think and then I braised them so they were they were just beautiful lightly brined hocks that have been braised for five six hours with a bit of brown sugar and a bit of orange and a bit of veal stock and they were delicious I'm glad glad to know (laughs) (laughs) glad to know that they were delicious so so yeah it's it's very I mean, for me, what is what is my favourite pork cut? The hocks were beautiful. Hocks are a, they're a, they're a magical thing. Um, I do do a lot of charcuterie, so you know, I I have a hot smoker, I have a cold smoker. You know, I've I've recently started doing whole leg hams, which make me happy. I love to make my own bacon. I love to make my own ventreche, which is sort of just salted pork belly that the French use a lot as the basis of many, many dishes. Um, 
And then I, I think that sort of those early years in Ste- at Stephanie's, you know, I think the all-time favourite for me is that at one point I had to bone pig trotters there and, you know, as a skill that I learned as a 19-year-old, it's still something that I love to do is bone them out and, you know, I think, you know, there's, a, there's been a couple of versions in my life. One is, one is uh, you know, almost a Zamponi-style thing where you stuff a bone trotter with a Cotechino mix um, and the other is, of course, the famous Pierre Kaufman, uh, you know, chicken, chicken mousseline and uh, the grown-up chicken nuggets, <laughs> you know, the crumbed, 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 um, crumbed chicken mousse in uh, pork skin. So I, I think trotters, trotters hold a special place. Um, I did try uh, many years ago, I did try to emulate Tansy's uh, stuffed pig's ear I think Tansy did a stuffed pig's ear and I think Yanni might have done a beautiful stuffed pig's ear in their careers. And I thought you had to bone them. I didn't realise you just put something on top of them and then then sort of seal it all up. So I tried to bone a pig's ear once or twice and that doesn't work. I can tell you, Huck, it doesn't work. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, yeah, you've got to try these things. You've got to be a wally at some point. So, so just... Every part of the pig, every single part of the pig is, you know, something that can be used. And I think that that is, you know, one of the things that makes it so special to me is that it is something that you can, you know, it's it's an amazing beast, an amazing beast. And the gelatin, you know, the way it makes things set, it's a, it's a, it's a thing of wonder. Well, honey, I've been dreaming of that pork hock dish ever since I saw that photo and I look forward to the day where we can sit at a table together and uh, perhaps share one or have one each. Um, It's a big meal, (laughs) a whole pork hock. Um, I've got a big tummy, so that's okay. Uh, All right, okay. (laughs) It's been amazing talking today, as usual. Um, Thank you. look forward to chatting again soon. You've been incredible today with your knowledge and um, and also your candour as well. And I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.